You're listening to the New Song Students Podcast. I'm Jackson, and I'm the student pastor at New Song Church, located in Oklahoma City. We hope this message builds your faith and helps you to know God better in a greater way today. Enjoy the message. Okay, well, if you've got your Bible or a journal, I want you to get that out because I don't know if you've noticed, there's a pattern recently in this series, and it's that you're definitely gonna need your Bible and you're definitely gonna need your journal because we have been going deep in this series. So get those things out. We are three quarters of the way-ish through a series that we've been in called Head in the Clouds. How many of you guys have been enjoying this series, Head in the Clouds? I'm just curious, is there anybody and you've learned something about the Bible that that you never knew before the series? Raise your hand if you learned something new. You never knew about scripture. Come on, let's go. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not gonna lie, as your pastor, I've been a little nervous uh, every single week to preach. I I bet Eric felt this way too. Every single week during this series, I've been a little nervous because we are not playing around. This is a series on God's word. And it has been a deep series, y'all. Every single week, we have not been playing around. We've been going deep into different portions of scripture. Um, But what's crazy about it, and I was thinking about this as I was writing this message, even though I say we're going deep, we're actually just scratching the surface of God's word because God's word is powerful. It's infinite. You know, you're gonna be studying God's word for the rest of your life and you're still not gonna know very much because God's word is living and active. And so even though I say this is a deep series, really, we're just scratching the surface of how good God's word is. I hope you see that. I hope you're excited about God's word. Anybody excited about God's word in the house? Um, If you haven't been a part of this series, let me just really quickly bring you up to speed. We're in week number five. Somebody say five. Week number five of a series all about scripture. And the reason why we're calling it Head in the Clouds is because when you look at scripture verse by verse, and I love going through scripture verse by verse, but when that's the only way you go through scripture, you miss the whole entire story that scripture is actually trying to communicate. You miss the fact that the Bible is not a collection of random books and random prophets but it is telling one story. It's telling the story of Jesus to us. And despite the fact that we live in like the most advanced technological age in the history of ever, despite the fact that you and I can Google whatever we wanna know at at our fingertips, a lot of us in this room, myself included, we're part of a generation, I'm a millennial, but you guys are Gen Z, but millennials and Gen Z have been labeled uh, biblically illiterate generations. Biblically, who's ever heard me say that phrase before? Biblically illiterate. That just means that we've been labeled a generation that doesn't know the Bible. We don't know how to read God's word. We don't know how to apply God's word. We don't know what God's word is actually saying. And that's exactly why we're doing this series because we are combating the fact that our generations have been labeled biblically illiterate. And we're gonna grow up as New Song students and we are not going to be biblically illiterate. We're gonna know God's word, amen? And so maybe you're here tonight and if you're just being honest with yourself and your relationship with the Bible, maybe you're like, Pastor Jackson, I think I might be biblically illiterate. If that's you, there's no shame. Don't freak out because I was thinking about this this week. Any person, any Bible scholar, any pastor, any commentary that you ever read or study, guess what? They all started somewhere. Like every person that you'll ever study who knows God's word really well, all started at one place of being biblically illiterate. And what changed was the fact that at one point in their life, they just decided I'm gonna commit 
to knowing God's word better. And so that's the same for you. If you're here tonight and you're like, man, I don't know anything about God's word. I, I feel like God's word is really confusing. Maybe that's you tonight. That is okay because that's where everybody starts with the Bible, amen? amen? And so that's why we're doing this series because we wanna take a 30,000 foot view of scripture. We wanna understand everything that we can about the story, the single story that it's telling us. And so we have already talked about three or four different portions of scripture, pop quiz. Does anybody know what the first portion is that we talked about? The law, the law that's right. We talked about the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Then we moved into, Eric did a phenomenal job talking about the nation. We talked about how God wanted to establish his people, a nation. That's part of the story. We've talked about the wisdom books of God, how the Bible tells us and answers the question, how do you live a good life? Will you live according to God's wisdom? And then last week, we looked at the prophets of God. And this week is the climax. We are entering into really the turning point, the linchpin moment in the entire story of God's word, and that is Jesus. Somebody say Jesus. We're talking about the Son of God. And so this is where we get to the good stuff, and not to say that the rest of the Bible is not the good stuff. That's totally not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that everything that we've already talked about up until this point has been leading to this, the arrival of Jesus. So are you all ready to dive into Jesus? Come on, is somebody excited about Jesus tonight? Okay, um, I wanna start us off in Galatians chapter four. So if you got a Bible, you can turn there. If you wanna write, jot that down in your notes, Galatians chapter four. We're gonna start off with this short little passage to tee us off, we'll pray, and then we'll jump into Jesus, amen. All right, let's go, let's go. Galatians chapter four, this is Paul talking. Here's what he says, I love this. In the same way also, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come. Um, is that outlined in there? No, okay, I want you to highlight that, circle that if you've got a Bible with you. If you're taking notes, write that down. But when the fullness of time had come, in the right moment, the perfect time in history, look at this, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might be, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Shout out to the ladies. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's a good passage right there. Jesus, he came at the exact perfect moment that he needed to. And we're gonna unpack this and how that fits into the story of the Bible tonight. But before we do, let's pray. Let's posture our hearts, get ready to receive this word. Father, I thank you so much for tonight. I thank you so much that Holy Spirit, you are in this place, that your presence is everywhere, but we, we sense it here tonight. And I thank you so much for this series, God, and that you want to raise up a new generation, that our generation, my generation, and Gen Z, they may be known at today as being biblically illiterate, not knowing your word, but I thank you that here at New Song Students, you are raising up students who love your word, students who know your word, who are familiar with your word. And so tonight, 
Help us to see Jesus in your word. Help us to see Jesus. Because what we're gonna find tonight in this message is that you showed up at the fullness of time, the perfect time, and there were still people that missed you. And we don't wanna miss you, Jesus. So thank you. Wake up every heart in the room tonight and speak to us. We open up to you and we say yes and amen in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. Okay. So we're officially done with the Old Testament portion of this series. Congratulations. You made it. We should make pins and you should get a sticker and you should pat yourself on the back because you made it through the Old Testament. Praise God. But now we're going to get to the good stuff, what the whole story is all about, and that's Jesus. We're going to find out Jesus' plan to redeem the whole world. Now, tonight's message is going to be slightly different than how we've been like taking the, the whole series so far for the last four weeks. Up until now, what we've been doing is we've been looking at specific portions of Scripture, and we've been looking at specific books in those portions of scripture. And we've been asking the question, how does this point me to Jesus? How does this fit in the whole story of the Bible? And this week, we aren't necessarily looking at specific books. But if we were, we would be looking at the gospels. Got another pop quiz for you. Who knows what the gospels are? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Thank you. If you wanna write that down so you don't forget, although I think most of you know that already, If we were gonna be focusing on specific books, we'd be focusing on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because those are the narrative of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. But we're not gonna be doing that tonight. We're actually gonna be taking a little bit of a different direction. Instead of looking at specific books in the Bible, we're just gonna be looking at a specific person. Amen? We're just gonna look at Jesus. So how many of you would agree, just by a show of hands, that Jesus is kind of a big deal? How, would, how many of you would agree? I hope all the hands are up, but maybe you don't. That's okay. If you don't, I'll show you why he's a big deal because he actually is. It seems obvious for most of us in here because we're literally here to meet with him. We're in this room to worship him and to be transformed to look like Jesus. We kind of understand he's a big deal, but whether you're a Christian or whether you're an atheist, you can't really debate the fact that Jesus is kind of a big deal. Like Jesus, whether you believe he was God or not, whether you are a Christian and you live for him or you are an atheist and you think he's just some random dude, Jesus, you cannot debate the fact that Jesus made a profound impact on history. You can't debate that. In fact, if you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus's arrival is the redemptive turning point in all of history and the story of God's word, which you're gonna see. But Jesus's arrival, his coming at the fullness of time is the, somebody say the, It's the redemptive turning point moment in all of history. Now, there are plenty of people in this world who would disagree with that statement. People who don't believe in Jesus, people who don't believe that he is who he said he was. Um, But there are some things about Jesus's life that they're just not up for debate. So I wanna look at this phrase, but I wanna take out that word redemption, okay? Okay, New Song students? I wanna look at this phrase, but I wanna take out the word redemption, redemption, and we're just gonna address, okay, was Jesus a turning point moment in history? Was his life, take out the redemption part, the dying for your sins, all that stuff, let's just take that out for a second, and let's just ask the question, did Jesus' life make a profound difference in history? Well, the answer is yes, and I'll prove it to you. For starters, our lives, your birthday, is literally marked by the death of Jesus's life. Like, 
Think about it. Our very lives, our birthday is marked by his death. My birthday is tomorrow, um, April 13th. Where are my April birthdays at? I see you. Shout out to you, ladies. Shout out to you. Let's go. When's yours? Uh, next. Let's go. Okay. So my birthday's tomorrow, April 13th, 19. 19. Some of you guys are like, Nin- you were born in 19? You guys are all in the 2000s and so young. But yeah, I was born in 1995. I'm still super young. And that, listen to me, that number, 1995, is not just like a random number. Do you know that? It's not a random number. Like, it wasn't like 1,995 years ago, some random dude was like, hey, we should start counting up, like from this point. We should just start counting years starting right now, ready, set, go. Like, no, 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 that date, is 1,995 years A.D. Can somebody tell me what A.D. means? After the death, after the death of Christ. So the life and death of Jesus literally splits our record of history right in two. Whether you're a believer or not, whether you think Jesus is the real deal or not, your birthday is marked by the life of Christ. And I'm sure like Buddha was a great dude, I'm sure uh, Muhammad was a great dude, but as far as I know, our lives aren't marked by them, right? No, our, our lives are marked by Christ, his life and death on the cross. That's just one, but not only time is the thing that's bringing us into the reality of who Jesus is, but a lot of the things that Jesus taught, a lot of the things that Jesus stood for and showed us about morals and how to love each other are, are, are things that shaped the way our world still functions to this day, whether we know it or not. See, Jesus shaped this thing called ethics. Does anybody know what ethics is? Ethics, morality, is basically just like how we treat each other, how we live in this world. And Jesus, a lot of what he taught, all of our world, secular or not, we're still living from those teachings to this day. Like, how many of you are familiar with this thing called the golden rule? The golden rule, treat others what? Treat others the way you want to be treated. Well, guess what? Some dude didn't just like say that and then another guy was like, hey, that's pretty good. We should use that and call it the golden rule. No, that rule came from Jesus and it's in our secular world today. What about this one? Have you ever heard this phrase thrown out? Judge not lest you be judged. Have you ever heard somebody say that? You can't judge me. You're a Christian. Jesus literally says, you can't judge me. Have you ever heard somebody say that to you? Jesus does actually say, judge not lest you be judged. And um, this, is, this isn't a phrase that some random secular person invented because they just wanted to live the way they wanted to. And they were like, hey, you can't judge me. But Jesus actually said this. Now, people who want nothing to do with Jesus have actually kind of like borrowed and stolen this phrase. And they've used it to say, you can't judge me. I can live the way I want to. But that's actually not what Jesus was saying. That's actually not what Jesus is saying. Um, Jesus wasn't saying, hey, you can just live however you want to and you're not allowed to judge anybody. In fact, I love what David Guzik says about this. It'll be up on the screen behind me. He says, among those who seem to know nothing about the Bible, whoo, shots fired. Among those who seem to know nothing about the Bible, this verse, uh, this is the verse that seems to be the most popular. Yet most people who quote this verse don't understand what Jesus said. They seem to think or hope that Jesus commanded a universal acceptance of any lifestyle or teaching. 
But just a little later in the same sermon, Jesus commanded us to know ourselves and others by the fruit of our life. So some sort of assessment or judgment is necessary for that. Look at this last phrase. The Christian is called to show unconditional love, but the Christian is not called to unconditional approval. We can really love people who do things that should not be approved of. We can love people unconditionally, but that's not the same as judging. And Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. And man, we live in a world that still is borrowing all of these teachings that Jesus said, but they're just taking the name of Jesus out of it. We're borrowing the golden rule, but we're throwing Jesus out. We're borrowing judge not lest you be judged, but we're throwing Jesus out. So Jesus shows up, he splits history in two, he lives a life and teaches us morals and standards that nobody has ever lived by before. But not only that, it wasn't just Jesus that made a profound impact in history. His disciples made a huge impact in history. You know that, right? Like the disciples, the early church flipped the world upside down. Now, I've heard a lot of people, a lot of people who are against religion, a lot of atheists, I've heard them say things like, man, religion just makes the world so much worse. Like Christianity, what has Christianity done for the world? Haven't you ever heard of the Crusades? Like people like to throw that out. They're like the Crusades, that was Christians who did that. But what they realize, it's actually a really ignorant statement. What they, what, what they don't realize is the vast things, the vast amount of things in our world that are only here because of the church. I wanna show this to you. Some of you might not even know that some of these things the church invented. Are y'all ready for this? Like the church made a dent in history. Look at this. Christianity has been the driving force behind some of the major events of world history, including the Christianization of the Western and Central Europe and Latin America. Some people might be like, that's not cool. I don't really care about that. But look at this. Christianity is responsible for the spreading of literacy and the foundation of universities. How many of you wanna to go to college one day? Guess what? Church started university. Look at this. Hospitals, the Christians started that. The development of art and music, literature, architecture, contributions to scientific methods, just war theory and trial by jury, just to name a few. These are just a few things that our world, the benefits that our world gets to experience, and guess where they came from? the church. And guess where the church came from? Jesus. So Jesus showing up marked history forever. Jesus splits history in two with his life. And the life of Jesus is profoundly important. So I think we can all agree with this statement. Jesus is kind of a big deal in history, right? Are we still on that same page? Jesus is kind of a big deal in history. Cool. But Jesus himself, he didn't just tell people, hey, I'm kind of a big deal. He made a much bigger claim than that. Jesus didn't just show up and say, hey, I'm a pretty important person. You might wanna listen to me. Nope, that claim is, is way too small. Jesus didn't even just show up and say, hey, I'm a prophet. You should listen to me. That's not a big enough claim. Jesus didn't even just say, hey, I'm the king. You should follow me. That's still not a big enough claim. The claim that Jesus made with his life on earth was this, I am God. That's the claim Jesus made. Not I'm a prophet, not I'm an important person. No, 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 no. I am God 
who put on flesh. And this is where things get very interesting with that one claim right there. That one, that one claim, sorry, that one claim from Jesus makes this makes us all have to answer this question. Each person has to decide in their heart whether or not they believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus is who he says he was. Because the reality is, if Jesus wasn't God, then you don't have to listen to a thing he said. No matter how good it sounded, no matter how amazing his life was, if he wasn't really God, you don't have to listen to him. But if he was God, that changes everything. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. You should write this down. C.S. Lewis says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, of infinite importance. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. That's so good. Lukewarm Christianity, it does not exist. Like, it can't exist. Either Christianity is true, and it means everything, or it's false, and it means nothing. There's no in-between, right? I love that. Jesus didn't just make a claim about who he was as being the son of God. He also made some pretty big claims about what he can offer you and me through his life. I wanna look at some, are y'all hanging in with me? Okay, cool, just making sure. There are some claims that Jesus made, some offers that he gave to us. I wanna show you three of them. Look at this, John 14, six, Jesus said to them, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, people love to point out the, the, how inclusive Jesus was. Have you ever heard somebody say, like, Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors? So you can be friends with sinners and tax collectors, right? I've heard that before, how Jesus is so inclusive. He sat with anybody and everybody, and that is actually true. Jesus was extremely inclusive. There's not a single person that has ever lived or ever will live, no matter how good or how evil that person is. They're not a single person that Jesus does not love unconditionally. You know that, right? There's not a single person. Jesus's love is unconditional. It's extremely inclusive. It doesn't matter if you've gone to church your entire life, you love Jesus, or you're out of church, you're an atheist, you're a homosexual, transgender, it doesn't matter. The love of Jesus goes to everybody, right? It's unconditional. The love of Jesus is for every single person. But this claim from Jesus that he just said is actually a very exclusive claim. Jesus doesn't say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and anybody can go to the Father however they want to. No, no, no. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and you can meet the Father. Anybody can go to heaven. You just have to go through me. So Jesus' love is absolutely inclusive. It touches every single heart. It's for every single person. But his plan for redemption, his plan, his plan to redeem a life is actually kind of inclusive because it requires you and I to make a decision. Does this make sense, New Song students? Here's another claim. That's a pretty bold claim, by the way. Would you guys say that's a pretty bold claim? Like Jesus just said, I'm literally the only way to heaven. That's a pretty big deal. Look at this second claim he makes. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Anybody like bread in this place? I love me some bread. Bread is awesome. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, when you go back, most of us know this. When you go back and you read this, 
this teaching from Jesus in its context is Jesus telling us that you come to me and he's gonna be your personal bread vending machine. No, he's not talking about physical bread. He's not saying, I'm gonna be your personal water fountain, New Song students. That would be really, that would also be a really bold claim, but that's not the claim he's making. He's not saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be your physical bread and your physical drink. What he's saying is, I'm the only one who's actually going to sustain your life. And that's a pretty bold claim, would you agree? Jesus is saying, that I am the only person, I'm the only thing in this world in all of creation that's gonna sustain your life. In the same way that you need bread and you need water to give your body what it needs for you to survive and to continue, he's saying, I'm the only thing that's going to sustain your life. Here's why that's a really bold claim, because while he's saying I'm the only way, what he's also saying is that anything this world offers you is not going to sustain you. At the same time, Jesus is saying, when he's saying, I'm the bread of life, you know what he's telling us? Money is not your bread of life. When he says, I'm the bread of life, he's saying, popularity is not your bread of life. In the same sentence that Jesus is saying, I'm the only way to, I'm the only way to the Father, and I'm the bread that sustains you, in the same breath, he's saying that popularity, good food, fun times, friends, technology, anything you could ever want, sex, music, art, sports, control, power, none of that is what sustains you. Jesus is making a pretty bold claim here. Would you agree, would you agree with me? He's saying you can have those things. They're not necessarily bad things. They just don't bring your life the nutrients it needs. Only I do that. That's a pretty bold claim, Jesus. You better be who you say you really are, right? Here's the third and last final one I wanna see. Look at this, John 6, 40. Look at what it says. It says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus doesn't just make the claim that if you follow him, if you trust in him, he'll sustain your earthly life. Jesus right here is making the boldest claim he's made, and he's saying in the same way, that they tried to kill my body and I was put in the grave and I beat death, I will resurrect your body. That's the claim Jesus is making. I will give you resurrection life. Now, no matter how distracted and no matter how much you can try to avoid it in this life, the reality is, man, at the end of the day, we all have to deal with this really heavy thing called death, right? Like, everybody dies. We have to deal with this thing called death. Have you ever experienced the loss of somebody close to you before? I know we probably all have experienced the loss of maybe a sibling or a family member or a friend, the death of a life that was close to us. If that's happened to you before, do you remember how much that woke you up? Like, that's what happens when we experience death that close it wakes us up to the reality that, oh man, this life actually isn't forever, right? Like this life isn't forever. And death is something that we all have to answer, whether you're a Christian or not. Everybody has to deal with the fact that we all at one day are gonna breathe our last breath and we're going to die. But Jesus makes this really bold claim. He shows up in a specific time in history and he claims that if you will trust in him, if you will live your life for him, that he will actually fix the biggest problem that has ever been 
faced in human history, and that's the death that we all experience one day. Now, if Jesus isn't God, then who cares? But if he is God, that means everything, right? Tim Keller says this, I love this quote. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't raise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? But we what did we just celebrate on Sunday? Easter. Easter. The fact that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Jesus is not dead. He's not in some tomb somewhere. He is in heaven. He's got a resurrected body. And what does that tell us? That tells us that everything he said was true. Everything he said matters. And with that, we could pretty much just end the message right there because like that's kind of like the nail that hits the head on the coffin. Like we all have to deal with the fact that Jesus rose and that he offers us life. So I think we've made it pretty clear that Jesus is kind of a big deal in history. He's a turning point moment. And you don't have to be a Christian to believe that. You don't have to be a Christian. But remember, I didn't just say that Jesus was a turning point moment in history. I said that he was the redemptive turning point moment in history, meaning he didn't just show up and live a good life and die and become a famous person. No, he offered redemption to the world. So I wanna look at this because how do we know? Have you ever asked that question before? Just being honest, we're in church, we can be honest. Have you ever thought, how do we know? Like, how do we know? A lot of people, they just see Jesus as this rabbi who lived 2000 years ago. How do I know that what he said was actually true? Well, I wanna go into answering this question. I'm actually gonna use scripture to do it. We're gonna look at the story of God's word. Are you guys still hanging in with me? Okay. Um, and I wanna look at this. I wanna look back at Galatians chapter four because it gives us a really cool hint into the time that Jesus came. This is the passage we opened up in. Look at this. It says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but, somebody say but. But, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The fullness of time. So I wanna look at this. Paul is writing this message to the Galatian church and Paul makes it pretty clear that Jesus did not show up at a random point in the story. Jesus showing up was not happenstance. God didn't just like roll the dice and he was like, all right, it's time to go, Jesus. No, this was all part of a beautiful thing God was orchestrating and I wanna prove that to you. That word fullness is the Greek word pleroma. Somebody say pleroma. Pleroma. That'd be a cool like, phrase to get tattooed, pleroma. That's a hard word to say. And what does pleroma mean? What does pleroma mean? It means this, that which has been filled, fullness. But here's the word picture that it gives us. It's a ship that is filled or manned with sailors, rowers, and soldiers. So the idea of pleroma is a ship that has all of the different moving parts, functioning together, coming together perfectly for this ship to move. Does this make sense? Pleroma, the fullness of time, is everything coming together perfectly for something to happen. Does this make sense? This is Pleroma. And God is orchestrating the arrival of Jesus. Paul tells us right here, Jesus didn't just come randomly. No, 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 no. It was in the fullness of time when he showed up. It was at the exact moment in the story of scripture when Jesus showed 
up. And this kind of reminds me of something that I love. This, I'm gonna get a little apologetic with you. Is there any apologetic nerds in the house? I love, I love apologetics. That's basically just like the, the arguments for faith. And this pleroma, fullness of time, God orchestrating things, it reminds me of, uh, of a thing that is actually called the fine-tuning argument. Has anybody ever heard of the fine-tuning argument? Let me explain it to you because it is so cool. It's basically a way that we as Christians can argue for the existence of God. Have you ever wanted to be able to do that before? The fine-tuning argument is a great way to argue the existence of God because if you don't believe in God, then there's a good chance that you believe that everything we see in creation happened by chance. It just happened by chance, evolution over a period, a long period of time, millions and millions of years, that's how everything happened. It just kinda happened. But if you actually study the universe just a little bit, man, you, you find out really quickly that everything that we live in should not be possible. Like the universe we live in, we should not be here. And there's a couple ways that we see this. Man, when you look at the earth, if the earth was just tilted a couple degrees off of its axis, life would not exist on earth. If we were just a little bit closer to the sun, we would burn to death. Somebody say, ouch. If we were just a little bit farther away from the sun, we would all freeze to death. Somebody say, burr. Burr. We would all freeze to death. And actually, I was was doing a little bit, I was just kind of like refreshing myself um, on the fine-tuning argument, and I found this really cool fact that I had never heard before, and it's this. It says, if the gravitational force were altered, uh, the gravitational force of the universe, if it were altered by one part in 10 to the 40th power. Okay, now y'all, have, y'all take math, right? Is, is 10 to the 40th power a big number? Yes. It, it's massive. We can't even comprehend that. So look at this. If the gravitational force was changed one degree from one in 10 to the 40th power, life on earth would not exist. So I heard somebody teaching this and they gave kind of a way you could understand how small this is. One in 10 to the 40th power is like us taking a tape measure and taking it, making it go as long as the known universe, which how many of you know, there's a lot of the universe we don't know. So it's just making a tape measure go as long as the known universe, marking a single inch marker on that tape and then saying if, if the inch marker was one inch this way or one inch that way, life on the universe wouldn't exist. That's insane. Like, like that's how fine-tuned the universe is. And Haley and I talk about this all of the time. My wife, Haley, she's in a medical degree right now. And so we talk about the human body a lot. Any doctors, future doctors in the house? Wow, not a single future doctor. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. We don't need doctors. We've got plenty of those. Um, Haley and I love talking about the human body because, man, I don't know how any doctor can be an atheist. Because when you study the body and how complex our bodies are, like you think God thought of literally everything. Like if our pH level, which I don't even know what that means, but Haley was telling me this yesterday. She was like, Jackson, if your pH level in your body shifts 0.01 degree, you die. But our bodies, God thought of everything to where our bodies are constantly monitoring everything that's happening so that we don't die. God is so amazing. Is God not amazing? And what I want you to see is this fine-tuning argument. 
this fullness of time, this idea that God is orchestrating everything we see. He know, his, his thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. Man, that encourages me. Because when I look back at my life, I see the hand of God, the fullness of God on my life. Like for instance, I was thinking about this this week. When I was in college, um, I had never, I was, I was not really big into leading. I liked being a follower. I was like, you guys can lead, I love to follow. And so I was a shy kid, never led anything. And when I was in Bible college, I felt the Lord lead me to start a prayer, a prayer group with some of, my, some of my homies. And so the verse that God gave me was Psalm 40, which says that God pulled me out of the miry clay and he placed my feet on a rock. And so I started this prayer group in college called Solid Rock. And we, yeah, it was pretty dope. And, and we met for three years every Saturday. And you know what? I learned how to pastor at Solid Rock. I learned how to pray and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit leading a small group of dudes called Solid Rock. Now, little did I know that one day God would call me to work at a church called New Song Church. New Song Church comes from Psalm 40. So God was preparing me and pulling me out of the miry pit, placing my feet on a solid rock so that he could put a new song in my heart. Like, I hope you know, that's not a coincidence. That's the fullness of time. That's God fine-tuning my life. And you know what? He's doing the same thing for your life. You know that, right? You're not here by accident, New Song students. You are not here by accident. God is orchestrating your life. Amen. Who, does, anybody, does that get anybody excited? Like God, see, God, see, yeehaw. God, God sees you. Amen. God sees you. He is orchestrating your life. And so I want to look at this. Um, if y'all can be so kind as to hang in with me just a little bit longer. Um, I want to look at what makes Jesus' arrival the fullness of time. That's the question we're going to answer tonight. What makes Jesus' arrival the fullness of time? Number one is this. Failure of leaders, kings, and false idols. Or if you want to put in parentheses, rock bottom. Rock bottom. And if you've read the Old Testament or if you've been paying attention at all during this series, what you will find is that up until the point of Jesus, nothing else has been working. Like the children of Israel, when you read the Old Testament, you will find that the children of Israel have basically been on a downward spiral since the sin in the Garden of Eden. Like they've just been constantly downward spiraling. And when it seems like God is finally raising up the right leader, they blow it. When it seems like God is finally about to bring them into the promised land, the children of Israel blow it. When it seems like God is finally raising up a king and the people are thinking, man, I really hope this is finally a good king that's gonna trust God and trust his words, boom, that king blows it. But unfortunately, and what we see in this pattern and throughout the Old Testament is that from Genesis to Malachi, the story of God's people is this, sin. Their entire story, that Old Testament is just the story of fallen people, constantly falling over and over and over again. It's the depravity of man. Nothing until this point in the Old Testament has worked. No leader has fixed their issues. No prophet has fixed their issues. No king, no false idol, which by the way, y'all know the children of Israel turned to quite a few false idols, right? And none of the false idols that they turned to 
fix their problems. None of them helped them. And it sounds like, and, and what this led to was the children of Israel hitting rock bottom. They hit rock bottom. And that sounds really depressing, and it kind of is. <laughs> but the cool thing about this, and we've talked about this before, but God actually uses rock bottoms as a gift. The children of Israel, they hit rock bottom because they are exiled. They, they become slaves to uh, Babylon because God has been so patient with them. He's been so patient with them. But at some point, God is like, I'm just gonna give you what you want. You want rebellion? I'll give you rebellion. And so he lets them go into exile. And in this moment, they hit rock bottom, but it was actually exactly what they needed. Because what rock bottom did for the children of Israel was it woke them up. It woke them up to their need for God. Now, whether you've been walking with God for one day or you've been walking with God for a long time, I just wanna warn you in love. Somebody say, in love. I wanna warn you in love that at some point in your life, all of us are going to hit a rock bottom. We all hit a rock bottom. And that might look different for you. Like your rock bottom in life, it might look different than my rock bottom in life but we all will hit that point at one point in our life. Rock bottom for you could look like a relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It ends and you thought that this person was the one. It could look like the death of a person in your family, the death of a best friend. It could look like you still being addicted to something that you thought you would be free from. Like rock bottom can look like a lot of different things for a lot of different people, but they do come. And when they do show up in our life, whether we like them or not, God actually uses these moments in our life as a gift. He uses it to wake us up to our need for him, our need for his presence, our need for him to fix us. I love this quote from David. I'm not even gonna try and say his last name. So I'm just gonna say David H. David H, he says this, Israel could not produce its own savior. I'm gonna read that again. Israel could not, that's the story of the Old Testament. Israel could not do it. They couldn't produce their own savior. Instead, Jesus is born of Mary as the result of God's gracious intervention into Israel's history through the creative action of the Holy Spirit. In the fullness of time, there's that word again, that phrase, the fullness of time, in the perfect time in history, God provided what human history by itself could not provide. And what we find when we hit rock bottom is guess what? Jesus is at rock bottom. Jesus is there with you. Psalm 139, this is one of my favorite passages in scripture. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, guess what? You ain't hiding, Jesus is there. He found you. Israel found themselves in a long history um, that spanned over a thousand, thousands and thousands of years of people constantly failing, kings constantly failing, idols constantly failing, and you know where it led them? The bottom. But it actually is what they exactly, it's what they needed because it woke them up to the fact that I need saving. I need saving. And this is what it does for you and me. There's gonna be a moment in your life, maybe you've already experienced it before. I know I have, where I hit that moment where I was like, oh, I get it, I do actually need saving. Jesus, I need you. We all face that moment. But what we see in the story of the Bible is this actually prepared Israel 
for the fullness of time. Can we keep going, New Song students? Are you hanging in with me? This rock bottom led to the children of Israel leading to this, point number two, hunger and anticipation. Hunger and anticipation, or in parentheses, you can write truth-seeking. So last week, we read in the book of Jeremiah. Do you guys remember that? We read in the book of Jeremiah, and in Jeremiah, one of the last things that happens in the story of the children of Israel is their exile to Babylon. And after that 70-year period, we go into a span that we don't really talk about a whole lot in church. It's called the intertestamental period. Who's ever heard of that term before? The intertestamental period is just the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that time between the Old Testament and the New Testament was 400 years of God saying nothing. It was 400 years of silence. No prophets, no word from God, nothing. So they just experienced rock bottom and then God never says anything to them for 400 years. But you know what this did for the children of Israel? It made them hungry. Come on, it made them hungry. It made them anticipate that God has to be doing something. And so it was actually during this intertestamental period where the big bad scribes and Pharisees were invented. And, you know, we think of the scribes and Pharisees as being these bad dudes, but they actually didn't start off bad. They started off as dudes who wanted to say, we're tired of missing God. We're tired of not obeying his word. So we're gonna commit to the covenant. And so the scribes and the Pharisees started us off as this good plan for, for Israel to wake up and to take God seriously. And so that's why, does this make sense why they were so devoted to the law? It's because they were hungry and they needed a savior. So they became reformed and so devoted to the law. But unfortunately, what we see is that their knowledge of God, it led to them being self-righteous and it led to their blindness when Jesus shows up. But man, I see this all of the time in the world. People hit rock bottom in their life and you know what it leads them to? It leads them to seeking out truth. When you hit rock bottom, you're gonna start to think, I need to know what truth is. And I see this all the time in the world. And you might find yourself seeking truth in science. You might find yourself seeking truth in what culture is saying. You might find yourself seeking truth in experiences, experiencing things, trying things out. The good news is, man, if you are genuinely seeking truth, guess what? You will eventually run into Jesus because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So that means if you are genuinely seeking truth, no matter what kind of crazy things you're trying, guess what? You're eventually kind of like Saul on the road to Damascus. Jesus is gonna show up at your front door and he's gonna bust it through and he's gonna say, who do you say that I am? If you're seeking truth, you are going to come up in contact with Jesus one day. And this is exactly what we see in the story of scripture. They get hungry, they're anticipating Jesus and Jesus shows up in the fullness of time. I've got two more things. I'm almost done. New song students, are you doing okay? I know we're going long, but the third thing that we see is prophecy, prophecy. And we talked about this last week, but God's word doesn't return void. You know that, right? God's word doesn't return void. And there are over 300 prophecies about the life, the death, the resurrection, the coming of Jesus. And you know, Jesus fulfilled every single one of the prophecies written about him. He fulfilled them all. In fact, there's one prophecy in Daniel 
And I, I don't know if I have time to go into it, honestly, but I want you to write it down. And will you promise to go back and read this for me? I know I'm giving you a little homework, but I just want to make sure we have enough time tonight. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 26. I want you to read that because it's a prophecy where Daniel is basically saying, hey, this is the exact amount of time that it's going to take for Jesus to show up. And he gives us this interesting phrase. He talks about 70 sets of weeks. Now, scripturally, when you look at that in the way that, that the Jewish people under, understood time, weeks actually meant, um, it actually meant a set of years, a set of seven. So when it says 70 sets of weeks, it's actually saying 70 times seven years. And that, if you do the math, is 490 years. So Jesus shows up, guess what? 490 years from this prophecy. In fact, most scholars believe that the triumphal entry of Jesus, when he's heading into Jerusalem on the donkey, most scholars believe that that is the year that the prophecy led up to, that Jesus saying, I'm the king, I'm showing up. I'm the one who's gonna save you. How cool is that, y'all? God's word is so good. So we've got hunger and anticipation leading to the fullness of time. We've got the fact that they hit rock bottom leading to the fullness of time. We've got God's word, prophecy, leading to the fullness of time. And the last one is this. I wanna invite the band to come up as we get ready to close. This one does not seem very poetic or interesting at all, but it's God orchestrating things and it is so amazing. And the fourth thing is this, it's Roman rule. Roman rule. And if you wanna write in parentheses, you can write coincidence, question mark, or fine-tuning. So what does this mean? Well, during this period, this 400 years of silence, towards the end, the Roman Empire started to take ground. They started to take over basically all of these nations. You've probably heard this before in the history books. It's called Hellenization, which sounds really freaky, but it's not. <laughs> Hellenization just means the Greekifying of the whole world. So it's the Greek Empire taking over everything. And this was actually... God setting up perfectly his message to explode when Jesus showed up. Are y'all hanging in with me? I'm almost done. Look at this. This quote is from Boyce. It says, it was a time when the Pax Romana extended over, the Roman Empire extended over most of the civilized earth when travel and commerce were therefore possible in a way that had formerly been impossible. Great roads linked the empire of the Caesars and its diverse regions were linked far more significantly than by all the pervasive language of the Greeks. Add the fact that the world was sunk into a moral abyss so low that even the pagans cried out against it and that spiritual hunger was ever, everywhere evident and one has a perfect time for the coming of Christ and for the early expansion of the Christian gospel. Okay, so how in the world is Roman rule a good thing? How is that a good thing in the story of the Bible? Well, the fact of the matter is that, um, the fact is that we see in this, God's thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts, y'all. God's ways are so much higher in our ways, and he orchestrates everything perfectly, and God can use anything, and we see that God even used the Roman Empire for his glory. Because you know what the Roman Empire brought? A unified language. So everybody, for the first time since the Tower of Babel fell, 
there's a massive group of people who all speak and understand the same language. Not only that, but the Roman Empire developed roads. And roads don't seem like a big deal for us today, but they were a huge deal back then because they connected people who would have never been connected before. So God, how cool is this? Waits for the Roman Empire to create a unified language, to create roads, and then in the fullness of time, Jesus shows up. And you know what happens? He has set up the stage for Jesus and his disciples to turn the world upside down because now it can spread through these roads. It can spread through the same language. I'm telling you, God thought of everything. New Song students, Jesus' arrival is the redemptive turning point in all of history. And guess what? It's the redemptive turning point in your history. If you're taking notes, this is my final point. We're gonna close. Jesus's arrival begs the question for you and me, who do you say that I am and will you follow me? Who do you say that I am and will you follow me? And I don't know where you find yourself tonight. Maybe you are here tonight and you have hit rock bottom. Maybe it was recently. <laughs> and you are kind of waking up to your need for a savior. Maybe you're here tonight and maybe tonight you're here and you're hungry. You're seeking truth. Maybe you're here tonight and there is some interesting things happening in your world. Some things that you're like, how could God use this? Man, I'm here to tell you tonight, Jesus, he can use anything. And Jesus in the fullness of time didn't just show up 2000 years ago. Jesus in the fullness of time showed up in your history. But this begs the question that you and I have to answer, who do you say Jesus is, New Song students? And who will you follow? I wanna invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And we're gonna respond really quickly.